Page four, lesson two of eight lessons in the series, the title of which is on the screen. You see why you can trust the Bible. So I will review briefly what we looked at in lesson one uh, in just a bit. Just want to remind you of some things that uh, are coming up. Those are in your program, so please take a a look at that. But uh, ladies, this Friday is the ladies' uh, night out, and it's at the uh, gun range. So there'll be some uh, training at the uh, Wayne County Sportsman's Club at uh, Inkster and Sibley area. And if you're interested in that, there's a cost. I think it's $10, and you can pay that today. Uh, you need to pay it today if you're going to go at the Resource Center, which is out that door and across the, the hall. And then uh, long range, uh, I mentioned that I want you to just be aware, especially those of you that are uh, guests at our church, you've been checking us out and wondering if this would be where God would have you to land as a, a church and part of a church family, we offer our newcomers orientation three times a year. And the next one of those is in June, uh, June 7 through 28 during this hour, the 11 o'clock hour. Uh, I will lead whatever group we have there through a booklet of material that tells you about our church and its history and its beliefs and hopefully we'll fill in some gaps for you. So if you're looking for a church and you've been coming for a while, that's we offer that for you. It's for informational purposes only. So uh, it doesn't obligate you to anything and we don't pressure you after you've taken it to uh, for any kind of a decision. So mark that the four Sundays in June if you fit into that category. And then longer range is July 19 is our next baptism. Those of you that have never been baptized which means you were dunked in water. That's why behind me there's a tank. That's where we do that. And uh, we put you actually under in water uh, in accordance with what the Bible teaches about what baptism is. The word baptism, baptizo, uh, means immerse, dip. And so that's the way it was always done in Scripture, and that's why uh, baptism is that. If you've never done that, then you haven't been baptized the way the Bible describes, and I'd love to explain all that to you. Uh, so, if you haven't been baptized, but you believe in Jesus and you want to follow him with your life, then that's one of the ways you follow him, is in baptism. So you start by filling out the one-page application that you can get at the information desk. You can pick one of those up before you leave. You can bring it back in the next couple of weeks. They'll get that to me, and then we'll go from there. All right, today, lesson two in our series, Why You Can Trust the Bible. And I want to just take a few minutes to tell you why it is we're doing a topic like this at all. Some of you know what I'm going to say as to why we do these kinds of series, but others of you are newer to our church and you don't know. So I just want to take a few minutes to explain that. We have this hour, what we call the Discovering God Hour. And in this hour, we do series like this uh, and series like Big Bang or Big God. Uh, on creation and, and evolution. Uh, we do a series on what's called What's the World Coming to? That's about end times issues that people have lots of, lots of questions about. Uh, we did a series uh, called You Mean the Bible Teaches That? And it's about ethical issues and what the Bible teaches about things like abortion and homosexuality and capital punishment and those kinds of things. So we have a a host of those kinds of series that we do during this hour. And the reason that we do it that way is because uh, when I was, before I was pastoring, when I was working a computer programming job, uh, at the various places at which I had uh, served as a, a consultant, I met a lot of people and talked to a lot of people about the Bible and about Christianity. And over those years, I had a lot of questions come to me that I made note of. 
that were common questions, frequently asked questions that people had about the Bible and Christianity. And those questions form the series that we do in, in Discovering God. I got lots of questions about science and the Bible. I got lots of questions about the end times issues. People had heard of 666 and Armageddon and uh, all of that. And I got lots of questions about the Bible itself. Where did the Bible come from? And how do you know that the Bible is God's word? What evidences does the Bible give of its uniqueness? Many people have a lot of misunderstandings about how it is that the Bible came to us. I can't tell you how many times I had someone uh, say that the Bible that we have now is not even remotely close to the original writings in their mind. Because they had understood it to be the tail end of a long translation process. And so you have the original was translated into one language, which was translated in another language. And then, you know, 20 times later, we finally get it in English. And every time you've translated from one to the other, you've lost something. So now, how can you trust the Bible, really? Well, that's a complete misunderstanding as to how we got the Bible. The Bible has not been translated time and time again. And we're at the tail end of that long translation process. Your English Bible was translated once. It was translated once from Hebrew, uh, which was the original language of your Old Testament, and Greek, the language of your New Testament. So it is translated, but it's only translated once. And further, we have manuscripts, Hebrew manuscripts and uh, Greek manuscripts to consult uh, in order to make sure we have an accurate translation. So because of those kinds of questions and those kinds of misunderstandings, I decided that it would be profitable for our church to have as part of its structure a time where we could offer those kinds of topics and answer those kinds of questions, and thus this series, Why You Can Trust the Bible. Now, last week we looked at the, or yeah, last week we looked at two things, the necessity of revelation and the provision of revelation. Lesson one looked at those two things, necessity of revelation and the provision of revelation. And what that means is why it's necessary for God to reveal, that is, make known, that's what the word revelation means, why it's necessary for God to make known himself, make known his purpose, make known uh, why he uh, created the world and what our role is in it. All of those things have to come to us by means of revelation. God has to tell us. And that's what I mean by the necessity then of revelation. Apart from revelation, then we grope in the dark. We don't know. We are like Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens and the guys that I was quoting in in the first hour. So there's the necessity of revelation, and then there's how that revelation was given to us, the way God provided it, the provision of revelation. And we saw that it happened... Uh, in times past in a number of ways, that God would appear to prophets in visions and dreams and sometimes directly address them. Uh, but the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 1, God, who at, in times past, at various times and in various ways, spoke to our forefathers, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son. And he has given then in these last days uh, the final revelation, the final making known of himself through Jesus. Jesus himself, his person, because he is God, is a revelation of God, a making known of who God is and what God is like. But also what Jesus said, what Jesus taught, also is a making known, a revelation. And Jesus' teaching 
was carried on through his first followers, and we looked at how he appointed and commissioned them specifically in order to give us what we have in what we call the New Testament. So last week, the necessity of revelation and how it was provided to us. Now top of page four, we say God has spoken and it is what he has spoken is written. In lesson one, we saw that revelation is necessary and that God has fulfilled this necessity by two forms of revelation, general and specific. General revelation provides general information about God, that is, in the fact that God has is the creator and his fingerprints are on creation, so the Bible teaches that everyone can see the handiwork of God around them. But that's general information about God given to a general audience. But God gives more specific information about himself in, in, in Scripture. Specific revelation gives us detailed content regarding God, ourselves, and his purpose. In addition, we've seen that in the past God utilized several means of specific revelation, Dreams, direct address, angels, visions, but now is spoken finally and fully through his son and his chosen apostles. Now we want to look at, in Roman numeral one, the reasons for scripture. Larry, uh, right, right up here. We've got uh, copies of the notes, so if anybody needs them, uh, but put your hand up there. What's that? Somebody gave you a spare copy. Well, who gave her a spare copy that wants the copy that Larry has now met? Well, this Larry wants one. He didn't give a spare copy, but... But he wants one. You got one over here too, right behind you. Okay. And Larry, you're out. You're you're out in the cold again. What? Do... <laughs> yeah, just just bring them out one at a time. Uh... <laughs> okay, it's all good. We got one up here, Larry. Uh, Larry up here could use one when you have one. Okay. All right. Thanks. All right. Here, Roman numeral one. We've got the reasons for scripture. So last week we looked at the necessity of revelation, and now here we say the reasons for Scripture. How are those different? The necessity of revelation and the reasons for Scripture. Well, revelation is, as I said, it is God making known. That's what the word means. But now what we're saying here is God having revealed, God having made known, now there is, these are the reasons that he inscripturated that revelation. The reasons that he wrote it, had it written down. And we use the word scripture here on purpose because it's script. It's writing. The Greek word in your New Testament for scripture is graphe. So we get graffiti, graphite, uh, from, from graphe. And so it refers to script and so the translation scripture or writing. So what we're saying here is, yes, God has made known, but there are good reasons why what God has made known has been committed to writing. So under Roman numeral one, ultimately God's acts and words were recorded in his written revelation, the Bible. God wanted his revelation written down for several important reasons. And so we'll bounce through uh, some of these. One is that scripture preserves that revelation. After oral communication has been passed down for several generations, its message becomes blurred. In order to provide a permanent record of his revelation, God wanted his truth preserved in human in written form. In Matthew 5:18, Jesus says, "I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished." God's written revelation will never be changed. 
God expressed his desire when he told Moses, write this on a scroll as something to be remembered. So God wanted it written so that it was preserved and thus then then remembered. Now when Jesus says in in Matthew 5.18, not the smallest letter and not the least stroke of a pen. If you are familiar with the King James translation of Matthew 5.18, you know that it says, not a jot nor a tittle will pass away. Jot and tittle. And, And here in the NIV, this translation says, the smallest letter or the least stroke of a pen. And uh, we've got two more. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna go through every time. We got one more. All right, Larry gets the one more up here. Larry, this Larry up here. All right, and then we're going to applaud every time you bring one of these in. Uh, going forward, is that it? All right, good. All right, the machine shut down. All right, thank you. So the King James says, uh, "A jot, neither a jot nor a tittle will pass away." The NIV says, "Not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of a pen." Why jot for smallest letter? And why a least stroke of a a tittle, why is that called the least stroke of a pen? Why is that? Well, well, here's why. Because uh, the language of the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament, the language in which it was written, was Hebrew. And, of course, Jesus is speaking. He's making that statement that's recorded in Matthew 5.18. Uh, at the beginning of the the New Testament. None of the New Testament has been recorded at the time he speaks those words. So the only thing that he has and they have at that point is the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament, all written in, in Hebrew. And the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet is called a yod. And a yod is quite small. It's actually just like a comma in, uh, in uh, our writing. And so it's a yod or anglicized to a jot. That's what a jot is. It's that like comma, that Hebrew letter that is the Y sound. So Yahweh, the name, personal name of God, if you look at the, the name Yahweh in Hebrew letters, it's actually only the four consonants, and then they supply the vowels. That's a long story, but it's only four consonants, but the, the first of those is the Y, and you'll just see it with that little comma-like. So that's the smallest letter, a, a yod or a jot. And then there's the least stroke of a pen that the King James calls a tittle. Now, what is that? Well, in Hebrew, you have, you have two letters that look exactly the same except one very small difference. The uh, R sound, uh, the, the letter that represents the R sound in Hebrew is called a resh, a resh. And if you were to draw a resh, it would be just like a right angle, uh, just like that. And that's a, an, an R, a resh. But then there's another one that is the D sound, the dalet, the dalet. And the way the dalet looks, it's very much like the resh, this just a right angle. It's 90 degree angle. Except in the corner, it's got a little tiny extension. And the little tiny extension is what differentiates a D sound, a dalet, from an R sound, a resh. And that little extension is called the tittle. And that's why in the NIV it says the least stroke of, of a pen. So not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of a pen. A jot or a tittle, a yod, or this little uh, extension at the corner of a, of a dollar. So scripture preserves God's revelation and scripture compiles, we say, God's revelation. Imagine having to locate hundreds of people so each could tell you a small portion of God's oral communication. What if our only authoritative message from God 
was what someone had told someone else. Fortunately, we're not in that situation because we have a book that compiles God's messages. So 1 Corinthians 10 says, These things happened to them in the first part of your Bible as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. What happened to Israel in the Old Testament was written for us today. And the Bible brings together all that God wanted to have for our benefit. So it preserves, it compiles, and then it mobilizes God's revelation. Written revelation is enduring and far-reaching. Even though the prophets have been dead for hundreds of years, their writings still speak. And here's an example of that. A revival that occurred in Nehemiah's day illustrates how the Bible can impact people even after the death of the, the human author. So you have Moses who wrote the first five books of your, your uh, Bible, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, written by, by Moses. But Moses is long dead and gone, but he has uh, inscripturated, written down, the books of the law, the first five books of your, of your Bible. And God's people, the, the Israelites, in their history, were taken captive. They were removed from uh, the promised land. They were removed from the environs of Jerusalem and uh, the temple, and they were, and they were uh, held captive for 70 years in Babylon. And you will read about that Babylonian captivity, uh, for example, in the book of Daniel. Uh, Daniel was one of the captives in Babylon. But then you have, in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, you have God's people returning from captivity back to, uh, back to Jerusalem. But they've been gone for a good while, and they haven't had access to the law and daily readings of, the, of God's word, the law. So when they come back, what we read here in Nehemiah 8 is in that context. And it says, all the people assembled as one man in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra the scribe to bring out, bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So on the day of, of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. He read it aloud from daybreak to noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women, and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Ezra the scribe stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. Ezra opened the book. All the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, the people all stood up. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God. And all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. Then they bowed down and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so the people could understand what was being read. And here we say at the top of page 5, there was a revival among the people without Moses or any other prophet to proclaim God's truth because they had God's written word. The written word endured long after Moses, in this case, was was dead and, and gone. So those are reasons that inscripturation, writing down God's revelation, is helpful to us. Now, how did that happen? How did it get written down? What was the process through which that happened? The New Testament word for scripture, as I said earlier, is graphe, which means writing. The means God used to put his revelation in writing is called inspiration. And it's called that based on this famous passage in 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, 
and training in righteousness. Now, let me stop there, explain why, based on that verse, we substitute the word inspired or inspiration. You see, when we have that quoted there, we say all scripture is God-breathed, and then in brackets we say all scripture is inspired. Why the word inspired? Here's why. It's because the Greek word that is translated God-breathed is uh, this Greek word. It's theonoustos. Now, you don't care about that except for what I'm going to tell you, so hang with me for a second. So theonoustos is a compound of two Greek words. Theos, which means God. So you know at least that much Greek. You already knew that. You knew that theos means, means God because a theist is one who believes in God. And an atheist means no God. And that's because theos means God. Okay, So theonoustos starts with God. And then noustos is the Greek word that's translated breath or air or spirit sometimes or wind. Uh, so we get our English word uh, pneumatic or pneumonia from it because if you've got pneumonia, you've got a breathing problem, okay? And so theonoustos then means God, theos. Noustos means breath, and that's why then it says all scripture is God-breathed. That word is behind uh, that uh, translation, God-breathed. So it's a very literal translation. God breathe is a literal translation of that one compound Greek word. Now, where does inspiration fit into that? Well, if you have a King James Bible, 2 Timothy 3.16 says this, All scripture is given by inspiration of God. That's how it starts out. So it doesn't say God breathed. It says it's given by inspiration. So the King James translators 500 years ago translated 400 years ago translated the that verse as um, as inspiration now why did they do that well one much of the King James translation does fall into the category that I said earlier where you've got a translation of other translations so it relied in a number of spots on a Latin translation of the Bible rather than Greek manuscripts so that's one and it used the English word inspiration rather than this literal God-breathe. Now, there's a good reason for that. Spirate uh, also means, our English word spirate means to breathe as well. So for noose toss, they wound up with spiration. So uh, if you have a respiratory problem, what do you have? You've got, a, you've got a breathing problem. If you expire, that means you stop breathing, Okay. So inspiration is referring to the same process of in-breathing. So God breathed in the King James, it's inspiration. But I go into all that because there is one problem. It's all good with the King James translation. All scripture is given by inspiration of God, except when it says inspiration, uh, it gives the impression that the important point of that passage is those to whom it was given, that it was inbreathed into them. And the point of the passage is not to whom it was given, but from whom it came. Not that it was breathed in, but rather from whom it was breathed out. So it came from it came from God. It is the breath of God. That is, it's God's word. 
So we still use, because the King James has had such, uh, and for good reason, such uh, influence, we still use the word inspiration to refer to it, but that's the history behind it. Now, let's make sure we understand what inspiration is not, and then we can look at what it is. What inspiration is not, biblical inspiration is not simply a high level of human achievement. So you all, in our day, we use the word so-and-so was inspired, you know, that was inspired teaching, that was inspired singing, that was inspired writing. You know, that's a high level of achievement where we compliment someone and we'll use the word inspired. But that's not what we mean by biblical inspiration. Secondly, biblical inspiration is not limited to the thoughts of the writer. Rather, what is what is breathed out by God is what God actually wanted written, the words that God wanted written. So what partakes of the uh, and has its source in God are the actual words that the biblical writers uh, use, not just their thoughts. We say there are some teach that God gave thoughts and not specific words. This would mean, for example, that when Paul wrote 1 Corinthians 13, God gave him some general thoughts on the subject of love without particular concern for the words. However, note the Scripture's emphasis on God's concern for the very words of Scripture. Even in that very book, 1 Corinthians chapter 2 says, We speak not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit. Or Jesus says in John 17, I gave them, the apostles, the words that you, Father, gave to me. And in the Old Testament, phrases such as, This is what the Lord says, the word of the Lord came, and God said, are repeated over 3,800 times. God communicates by words. Then page 6, Paul, who wrote nearly half of your New Testament, says, I want you to know, brothers, the gospel I preached to you is not something I made up. I did not receive it from any man, nor as I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. And God said to Moses, go, I will help you speak and will teach you what it is you're to say. Forty years later, Moses said to Israel, do not add to what I command you. Do not subtract from it, but keep the commands of the Lord, that God, your God, that I gave you. Words spoken by God are not to be taken away from or added to. Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away. My words will never pass away. And again, Paul, if anybody thinks he's a prophet or spiritually gifted, let him acknowledge that what I am writing to you is the Lord's command. So inspiration extended is not extended to only the thoughts, but the very words of the Bible are given and sourced by God, sourced in God. Inspiration is also not dependent on the reader. So, you know, I know in our postmodern era that meaning uh, is derived based upon your subjective understanding of what it means to you. That's the way we look at meaning today. So in our culture, meaning is whatever something means, means to you. We've got Supreme Court justices who interpret the Constitution that way, and I will wax political with you sometime if you ever would like to talk about that, that that it's a living document and it means stuff different today than it meant when it was originally written, say some. And that's the way some people use the Bible and other literature as well. That meaning is not the author's intended meaning. The ultimate author is God, but rather it is, uh, it is what it means to the, to the reader. So inspiration is not dependent on the reader and it's not, fourthly, limited to portions of the Bible. If you read those paragraphs there, you'll see that we're talking about those portions of the Bible that touch on topics uh, that relate to science or relate to history. 
and in Christian church history, there have been those who have said that portions of the Bible are from God and are inspired and are without error, but there are other portions of the Bible that are subject to error. It's only those portions, say they, that uh, that reflect on salvation and uh, the gospel that partake of this inspiration and then being without error. But when the Bible speaks of things like history, when the Bible touches on things like science, then it's not a science book and it's not a history book, say they. So therefore, it, uh, it uh, uh, may have, and they believe, many of them believe, does have errors in it. Well, it is not that. It is not limited to portions of the Bible. Second Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is God-breathed. All Scripture is God-breathed. And further, just as a practical point, if the Bible can be mistaken, now, now hear this, if the Bible can be mistaken in the areas that you can objectively verify, if the Bible says that historically there were a group of people who existed and did certain things at a particular time in history, and you could then presumably look into history and verify that objectively. Uh, but if the Bible's wrong about those things, or if the Bible's wrong about the things it says about scientific matters, if it's wrong about the things you can verify, then why would you ever believe the things you can't verify? Why would you ever believe the things that it calls you to believe by faith? The things that you cannot see and cannot verify. And as one uh, teacher of mine put it, if you lie to me once, what's to keep you from lying to me twice or three times or five times? Page 7, inspiration is also not mechanical dictation. Inspiration is not mechanical dictation. That is, God did not grab the, the hand of a Moses or a Paul or a David or uh, an Isaiah or Peter or John or any of the scripture writers. You have 66 books in your Bible, 39 of them in the Old Testament, 27 in the New and there are 40 different authors of those 66 books. So I just gave you some of those names. Now, God did not take the hand and grab the hand, as it were, of any of them and mechanically dictate what they would write. So he didn't move their hand. Um, and he didn't, he, didn't, uh, he didn't actually say, uh, you're a secretary, take a letter. And then speak the words directly to them. But rather... He used their personalities, he used their backgrounds, so that what they wrote was precisely what he wanted written. So God, rather than, rather than guiding their hand, God guided their lives. And he brought them to the point where they wrote down what we have in Scripture so that it was precisely what it was that he wanted written. So that's what inspiration is not. Here's what inspiration is. A good definition, middle of page 7, for the inspiration of Scripture is God superintended the human authors of the Bible so that they composed and recorded without error his message to mankind in the words of their original writings. That is a actually a very good definition from Charles Ryrie. And it covers all the bases. It is God superintending. It is God overseeing the process of who would write and overseeing that process years before they would actually put pen to parchment uh, to, to write it. 
preparing them to be the very kind of vessel that he wanted in order to write the particular book that they contributed. So it's God superintending the human authors of the Bible so that they composed and recorded. So they composed, you know, they, your Bible's got not only 40 different authors and 66 different books, but it's got different genres of books in those 66. So some of them are letters uh, in your New Testament. A number of them are letters. Uh, some of them are uh, uh, historical accounts, narratives. Much of your Bible is narrating, a writer narrating what happened to, to other people. Some of it is law. Some of it is wisdom literature, like Proverbs in your Old Testament. So there are different kinds, these different kinds of writings, but they composed and recorded. And they composed depending on the purpose for this particular book. If it was a law book, it was composed that way. If it was a wisdom book, it was composed as wisdom literature. And they recorded. Now, sometimes the stuff that they put in the Bible, not a lot, but sometimes, is not actually stuff that they came up with. It's not original with them. They got it from somebody else. So you have examples of that in, for example, uh, First and Second Kings in the first part of your Bible in the Old Testament. And as the name of those books suggests, it's about kings. And if you read First and Second Kings, it's about the kings who reigned in, in Israel. And it talks about who they were and how long they reigned and some of the things that happened during their reign. But then it will say this a number of times, that this has come from the records of the annals of the kings of Israel. So you have this thing called the annals of the kings of Israel, which apparently was like a record of the mayors of the city of Trenton at City Hall. They have a record of the guys who were the kings. And the author of First and Second Kings goes and gets the record. And he has this record of who was king at, at, various, at various times. You go, well, how's that inspired? Well, here's how. Remember, we said inspiration is not primarily about to whom it came, but from whom it came. And God used the human authors to not only compose, but also to record and compile from sources. But what they compiled is precisely what God, what God wanted written. And because it then is ultimately from God, is without error, even though it came from a, a, sec, in a, a secondary source. You have the same kind of thing in the book of Proverbs. You have a section in the book of Proverbs called the 33 sayings of the wise. Um, excuse me, the 30 sayings of the wise. And as you read those, if you were to, if you were to read the sayings of the wise of a, an Egyptian philosopher who came before Solomon or the other writers of Proverbs, they sound very familiar. In all likelihood, those sayings came from this Egyptian philosopher. You say, well, that can't be inspired, but it indeed can be because, again, it's not to whom it came, it is from whom it came. And God uh, oversaw, superintended the process so that what they wrote is what he wanted written. The last line in that is that this is recorded without error, his message to mankind in the words of their original writings. So, Notice the phrase original writings. It does not mean that there cannot be an error made when somebody copies from an original copy to then another. 
So God has not miraculously preserved his word. He has providentially preserved his word. Not miraculously, but providentially. If he had miraculously uh, preserved his word, then, uh, then there would only be, there would only, every copy of the Bible would look exactly the same. But every copy of the Bible doesn't look exactly the same. They are, but they are different only in this way. If you take two manuscripts of, Greek manuscripts of a New Testament book, and you lay them side by side, and you read them word for word, you will find that the person who copied it was doing this. And they did what you sometimes do, and I sometimes do. You'll find a word copied twice. Or you'll find a line copied twice. They thought they had already done that line, and then I went back to the line, and they did it, and they did it again. So that's a that's a copying error, but that's not an error in the that's not an error in the original. Further, that error is absolutely identifiable because you see that they copied exactly the same line twice as a as a copying mistake. And so God's preservation of His Word is by providence giving us these manuscripts so that we can look at them and we can see those kinds of uh, those kinds of issues my uh, theology professor at seminary dr. McCune used to speak of these uh, these copying variations that occurred over time with copies of the Bible and he would make the statement that even with that even with all that copying that those issues relate to one one thousandth of the Bible now you think about you think about God's preservation of His Word over all of that time, with people copying it and it applying to that uh, percentage of His Word. So, inspir- what what is inspiration? That's a good definition of it from Charles Ryrie. Let's flesh that out a little bit. Inspiration means Scripture is God breathed, as I've as I pointed out. Second Timothy three sixteen. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. That's the King James. Translation: The New Testament word for the phrase inspiration is theonoustos, which is literally God breathed. Scripture proceeded from the mouth of God. God breathed the Bible into existence. So when Scripture speaks, God speaks. So when the Bible speaks, you don't have the option of ignoring it. I don't have the option of ignoring it because when the Bible speaks, that is God speaking. And inspiration, bottom of page 7, includes all of Scripture. All that is Scripture is God breathed. This includes all the writings contained in what's called the canon. That is, those books that met the standard of authenticity as being from God. Now, what standard, that's what the word canon means, standard, what canon was used to measure this authenticity? The early church was able to recognize the books that came from God if they met the following criteria. Top of page 8. Apostolic authority, universal acceptance, and doctrinal consistency. Now, let me just... Take a few minutes to explain that. The very first one there says apostolic authority. Now, do you guys remember who the apostles were? The apostles are New Testament guys. Those are the guys that Jesus chose. So the 12 apostles. So that that totally skips the first part of your Bible, the the Old Testament. What about the, the first 39 books of your Bible, the Old Testament? Because they didn't have apostolic authority because there weren't any apostles in the in the Old Testament. So what about those? How do we know that the Old Testament has the books that it's supposed to have? Well, let me uh, go through that quickly with you, and we'll finish up. In the next five to six minutes, we'll do our best. 
in Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. In Luke 24, verses 46 to, to 49. Luke 24, 46 to 49. Jesus is speaking just before he ascends back to the Father. He's come to earth. He has accomplished his mission. He's died on the cross. He's raised from the grave. And he's going to ascend back to the Father. But he's given final instructions. And he, and he says in those instructions that everything that has been written about me in three places... In the law, the prophets, and the writings. That's what he says. The law, the prophets, and the writings. Everything that's been written about me will be fulfilled. Everything written in those three sections. Law, prophets, writings. Now, what are the law, the prophets, and the writings? Here's what they are. They are the 39 books of your Old Testament. Those are the three categories that those 39 books fit into. In fact, I have a Hebrew Bible of the Old Testament, written in Hebrew, and on the front cover of that Hebrew Bible, uh, it has three words. Just like your Bible might say on the front cover, Holy Bible, this is the three words that it says on the front cover of a Hebrew Bible that has these 39 books in it. It says uh, uh, Torah and Nabi'im and Ketubim. Torah, Nabi'im, and Ketubim. Now, those are three Hebrew words. Torah means law, Nabi'im means prophets, and Ketubim means the writings. And so these are the three sections that those 39 books fit into. And Jesus is saying, we've got them. So the authority, God himself, says we've got them. At the time he lived, and that is hundreds of years after they were first, first written, they had been preserved. Also, in Matthew chapter 11, Matthew 11 and verse 53, Matthew 11 and verse, no, Luke 11 and verse 53, Luke 11 and verse 53, Luke 11, 53. Here's what Jesus says. He's castigating the religious leaders of his day, and he says to them, you are guilty of the blood of all of the prophets. And then he says this, you're guilty of the blood of all of the prophets from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah. That's what he says. Now, why does he say that? From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah. Well, you know where the blood of Abel was spilled, where Abel was murdered. What book of the Bible? Very first book, Genesis. So you're guilty of the blood of all the prophets that's been spilled, beginning with the very first book, Genesis, to the blood of Zechariah. Where was the blood of Zechariah spilled? And it turns out it was in, it's recorded in the book of Second Chronicles. Second Chronicles. Now, you say, the last book in my arrangement of the 39 books is not Second Chronicles. It's Malachi. So it would have been good if Jesus had found a murder in Malachi. That would have helped. Then it would be Genesis to, to Malachi. But he says Genesis to Second Chronicles. Why does he do that? Here's why. Because although the, the, the Jewish Hebrew uh, Old Testament has the same books that yours has, they're arranged differently. They start with the same book, Genesis. But it doesn't end with Malachi, it ends with Second Chronicles. has the same 39 books, but they're arranged differently. So here's Jesus with a Hebrew Bible that starts with Genesis and ends with Second Chronicles, has the same 39 books in it, and he says you're guilty of all of the blood of all of the prophets, in effect, from the beginning to the end. So here's Jesus saying in those statements, law, prophets, writings, Blood of Abel to blood of Zechariah. That at the time he walked the earth 2,000 years ago, the Old Testament was complete, and you have it. So that's why we don't deal with the Old Testament here. Jesus dealt with that for us. But in the New Testament, the New Testament came. 
through the apostles. Jesus assigned uh, emissaries. And that's why, top of page 8, apostolic authority was the first criteria. These are the people that Jesus authorized to write his word because he was going to give them the ability to remember his word. Do you remember in John chapter uh, 14, 15, and 16, the night before Jesus died, he gave those 12 some promises. He said that the Holy Spirit is going to be given to you, and he's going to bring to your remembrance everything that I've commanded you. He's going to bring to your remembrance everything I've commanded you. Now, he doesn't bring to your remembrance everything he commanded you, right? Because he doesn't bring to my remembrance. I mean, I'm, I said Matthew 11, and it's really Luke 11, and I just forget stuff, okay? And you forget stuff too. But those guys were able to have perfect recall of what Jesus told them because he gave them this special ability in order to years later write down what we know as the New Testament. And they were able, with that perfect recall, to tell it to others, like Mark and like Luke, who were able to write it down as well. So apostolic authority, universal acceptance means the book was universally accepted by the church, and then uh, it's consistent doctrinally with books that were already part of the canon. Now note this importantly, and we'll be done. The church did not confer authority on the books of the Bible. Rather, it recognized the authority the books already possessed. This recognition began very early as the books were even being written. For instance, in 1 Timothy 5.18, it says, For the scripture says, Do not muzzle the ox while it's treading out the grain, and the worker deserves his wages. That first quote's from the Old Testament, Deuteronomy, but the second one is from Luke 10, and it calls it the scripture. So here's a quote from Luke, one of the Gospels, and in 1 Timothy 5, it's being quoted and being called scripture, graphe, God, God breathed. So here a passage in the New Testament just a few years after its writing is called Scripture. And likewise, in 2 Peter 3.16, Peter identifies the writings of Paul, who wrote nearly half of your New Testament as graphe, as Scripture. Our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort. Now notice this phrase, as they do the other Scriptures. So Paul's writings are equated with the other graphe, the other scriptures. So what do we conclude from all of that? The scripture is without error because it came from God. The scripture has full authority because it came from God. God tells us that he has given us in the 66 books of scripture all that we need for life and godliness, for every good work. It is sufficient and the scripture is effective. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this blessed day, the opportunity to praise you for who you are and what you've done to learn of you. Lord, help us now to go and live what we have learned. Help us to bring glory to you in all the pursuits you lay before us. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.